Assalamu alaikum brothers and sisters, I'm Sister B and welcome to Islamic Audio Bites and the last part of the Crusades part 2, the Mongol Scourge from islamiclegacy.org Let's listen. Ibn Taymiyyah described the Mongols as a category of non-Muslim that rejected Islam while still claiming to belong to it. Without a doubt, these were infidels and not Muslims because they had entered Islam without following its Sharia. Taymiyyah clearly stated that the matter was agreed upon, that the Mongols should be fought totally, until they returned to practice the fundamentals of Islam and to prevent fitna, so that the religion, or worship, will be for Allah alone. In Ibn Taymiyyah's opinion, these pronouncements applied to the Mongols in their homelands, so how about if they invaded the lands of the Muslims and attacked them for no other reason than to inflict injustice and injury upon the Muslim nation? The sheikh cited a verse of the Quran. Will you not fight a people who have violated their oaths, pagans of Makkah, and intended to expel the messenger while they did attack you first? Do you fear them? Allah has more right than you should fear him if you are believers. Once again, the fog of confusion that threatened to destroy the strength of the Ummah was lifted by a clearly articulated document that refuted the arguments of a minority of scholars and left no doubt about the true status of the Mongols and their like. Having played a key role in preserving the strength and the morale of the Ummah using the pen, Ibn Taymiyyah took up the sword. On the 2nd of Ramadan in 702 Hijri, Mamluk and Mongol soldiers were lined up on the plains of Shakab. As it was the holy month of Ramadan, the Muslims would normally have been expected to fast. But Ibn Taymiyyah issued a verdict that the troops should break their fast. He visited the various detachments, offering them something to break their fast with, and also advising them of the hadith of the Prophet, peace be upon him, who said to his companions, You are approaching your enemy, and breaking the fast will make you stronger. Before battle, Ibn Taymiyyah further encouraged the Mamluk Sultan to perform jihad, who in turn asked Ibn Taymiyyah to take position by his side. Ibn Taymiyyah replied to the Sultan by saying, The Sunnah is for each man to stand behind the flag of his people, and we are from Sham, so we will only stand with them. And so the Battle of Shakab began. The Mamluks fought with valor, with the Sultan chaining the legs of his horse lest it should run away in the heat of battle. Ibn Taymiyyah amazed even the Mamluk army's generals with his courage, one of whom noted the following. Seated on horseback, he assumed his station in the front line like a brave soldier and flew at the enemy ranks as if he had no fear. The left wing of the Mongol army ferociously attacked the Mamluk's right wing with a brigade of 10,000 soldiers. The Muslims suffered heavy casualties from this single assault. The Mamluk center and left wings, under the command of Emir Salar and Amir Baybars al-Jashnakir, emerged to confront the Mongols. But the Mongols continued to charge into the right flank of the Egyptian army, pushing them back. The Muslim army seemed to be heading for a defeat. The Mamluk left flank, however, 
held firm. The Mongol commander, Kutlu Shah, went to the top of a nearby hill, expecting to witness the final victory of his army. But while he was issuing orders, the Egyptians surrounded the hill. The Mongols suffered heavy casualties defending their position on the hill. The next morning, the Mamluks deliberately opened their ranks to let the Mongols flee to the river. But when the Mongols reached the river to drink, the Sultan attacked the Mongols. The fighting lasted till noon, and by the next day, the battle was over. It was reported that upon hearing the news of a crushing defeat, Kazan suffered a hemorrhage and died a year later. As for the Muslim armies, they triumphantly entered Damascus on the 5th of Ramadan. But this victory may not have been possible had it not been for the bravery and courage of Ibn Taymiyyah, who not only dared to challenge Kazan, but also rallied the Muslims and their leaders to fight against tyranny and oppression. Chapter 3 Intellectual Inferno Although the Mongols had been dealt a mortal blow in this campaign, Ibn Taymiyyah was well aware that the poisonous beliefs that had afflicted the Muslim population continued to spread. In one case, a number of Muslims had attributed divine powers to a particular rock. In the tradition of the Prophet Ibrahim, Ibn Taymiyyah had the rock destroyed by stonemasons. In another, an old man who had grown long nails and wore a flamboyant quilt was brought in front of him on the charge of being addicted to intoxicants and abusive language. Ibn Taymiyyah had his nails trimmed, his quilt torn, and the man was made to renounce his vile ways. The sheikh and his companions would frequently traverse the streets, closing down taverns and preempting other such immoralities from springing up. But rather than thank Ibn Taymiyyah for voluntarily maintaining law and order, many of his reformative actions gained him the displeasure of a portion of the population. Apart from engaging with the Mongols, Ibn Taymiyyah also took part in jihad against the heretic sects, such as the Batinites, Ismahilites, Hakimites, and the Nusayrites. These groups lived around the areas of Damascus and had encouraged the Crusaders and the Mongols to attack the main body of the Muslim Ummah. They would carry out raids themselves and had, on a previous occasion, harassed the defeated Mamluk army on their return back to Egypt. The people of these sects openly rejoiced at the incoming Mongol hordes and expressed grief when the Muslims had defeated them. Ibn Taymiyyah was successful in bringing some back to the fold of Islam, but many still remained indifferent and were therefore subdued by the expedition. During his lifetime, Ibn Taymiyyah wrote Jawab Usaheh, a treatise consisting of several volumes where he comprehensively refuted the arguments and allegations of the Christians. His work traced the spiritual experiences of the early communities back to the mythology and idolatry of the Romans. He went further on to explain the corruption of the texts and of the prophecies contained within the Christian scriptures that related to the last and final messenger, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Ibn Taymiyyah also wrote a 1,200-page text titled Minhaj As-Sunnah as a refutation of the Shiite sect. His work came as a response to the writings of one who in his zeal had painted the first three rightly guided Khalifas of Islam not only as hypocrites and impostors, but also as vile and unjust creatures. 
Ibn Taymiyyah pointed out how even the Jews and Christians, whose scriptures accused many prophets of indecencies, in fact respected the prophets more than the Shiites did. He also noted that the key difference, and a major cause of hostilities they had with Islam, was their bitterness against the first three Khalifas, and a majority of the Prophet's companions. But Ibn Taymiyyah's personality and his activities would earn him many enemies. Some of the religious elite grew jealous of his popularity, whilst others were annoyed with his methods. Some even loathed him for the humiliation they had experienced when debating the scholar. Ibn Taymiyyah was a human after all, and like all humans, he too was prone to mistakes, as his student Ad-Dahabi notes, that he was a man from amongst men. He could be overcome with sharpness and anger in discussions, and attack his opponents verbally, hence planting enmity in their souls towards him. As Ibn Kathir, another one of his students, put it, he was, may Allah have mercy upon him, from the greatest of scholars, but also from those who err and are correct. However, his errors with respect to his correct rulings were like a drop in a huge ocean. Chapter 4 Final Days Despite Ibn Taymiyyah's esteemed standing amongst the population, his political opponents would find every possible avenue to discredit him. Over the many years of his struggles, Ibn Taymiyyah was imprisoned no less than six times and then offered freedom from incarceration in exchange for renouncing his creed. But each time, Ibn Taymiyyah would respond, The prison is dearer to me than what I am asked to affirm. A few years later, the Sultan of Egypt abdicated his rule, leaving his deputy in charge. This new ruler was fiercely opposed to Ibn Taymiyyah and had him exiled to Skandaria. Even here, Ibn Taymiyyah proved popular. However, his stay was short, for the previous sultan returned and assumed control once more, immediately releasing Ibn Taymiyyah from exile. Even with his short stay in Skandaria, Ibn Taymiyyah had managed to bring many deviants back to the path of Sharia. Upon returning, Ibn Taymiyyah visited the sultan, who in turn advised him of the plot his adversaries had been laying. He consented with Ibn Taymiyyah for the execution of these men, at which point Ibn Taymiyyah immediately began praising them to prevent any punishment from taking place. Such was his large heart that he forgave the very same people who had tried to get rid of him. Ibn Taymiyyah's enemies, however, were clearly not of his caliber. They managed to obtain a 17-year-old legal opinion in which Ibn Taymiyyah had noted that no journey to a shrine even if it be to the grave of the Holy Prophet of Islam, could be undertaken as an act of devotion under the Sharia. Through this opinion, his opponents began to discredit him amongst the ignorant. Although Ibn Taymiyyah's opinion was sound, his verdict was used to gain negative publicity amongst the masses. This resulted in the desired effect. Ibn Taymiyyah was jailed in 726 Hijri. His time in jail, however, proved to be more worthy, as he concentrated on prayer and writing. His works were often copied and distributed throughout the country. This would not last for long, however, as on one occasion Ibn Taymiyyah had written a lengthy dissertation in response to a qadi from the Maliki school, 
proving how ignorant and unlearned the man was. Subsequently, this man complained to the royal court, which issued a decree ordering that every book, paper, and pen be taken away from Ibn Taymiyyah. Such was the injustice. But Ibn Taymiyyah did not complain. Instead, he began writing with charcoal on whatever pieces of paper he could find. He resigned himself to his fate without discontent, for he regarded his trials and tribulations as that of a fighter in the way of God. Though Ibn Taymiyyah had been in and out of prison on several occasions, this would prove to be his last. Towards the end of his life, Ibn Taymiyyah was asked for forgiveness by the governor of Damascus, to which he responded, I have already forgiven you and all those persons who have been hostile to me. They knew not that I was in the right. I bear no malice, nor have I any grievance against the king for putting me in jail at the instance of the theologians. He did not do it of his own accord, and is free from all responsibility in this regard. I have pardoned every man in this affair, except those who are enemies of God and his prophet. Two famous works of Ibn Taymiyyah relating to the Islamic creed are still widely studied today. These are Aqidatul Wasitiyah and Aqidatul Hamawiyah. The latter was amazingly written in a single day between the afternoon prayer of Asr and the evening prayer of Maghreb. This 80-page book was drafted in response to a question posed to him. Much of writings running into tens of volumes were written in this period. Ibn Taymiyyah's fatawa, or rulings in response to questions, amassed to a monumental 37 volumes. Ad-Dahabi states that he produced a total of 500 pieces of work at the time of his death. Ibn Taymiyyah reached the status of Mujtahid Mutlaq, which means he was qualified to make his rulings without having to refer to any school or fiqh, or to toe any particular line. This, that sometimes he would make a scholarly discretion that would disagree with many preceding scholars, but the evidence he relied on was always strong and authentic. In his last days, Ibn Taymiyyah had reserved himself to reciting the Qur'an. He had just finished reciting the closing verses of Surah Al-Kamar. Lo, the righteous will dwell among gardens and rivers firmly established in the favor of a mighty king. But he would not go any further. On the 22nd of Zulkada, 728 Hijri, whilst still in jail, and after all his trials and tribulations, Ahmed Taqiyuddin ibn Taymiyyah departed this world. An estimated 100,000 people turned up for his funeral. As one of his students would relate, Once the people had heard of his death, not a single person in Damascus who was able to attend the prayer and wanted to remained, except that he appeared and was present for it. As a result, the markets in Damascus were closed and all transactions of livelihood were stopped. Governors, heads, scholars, jurists all came out. They say that none of the majority of the people failed to turn up. According to my knowledge, except three individuals, they were well known for their enmity for Ibn Taymiyyah and thus hid away from the people out of fear for their lives. And so, with his death ended another chapter in history. But he would not be forgotten. 
for he had inspired all with his bravery and intelligence. Standing up against the tyrants and deviants, holding on to the truth where no others would dare venture. About him, the renowned scholar Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani stated, The acclaim of Taqi ad-Din Ibn Taymiyyah is more renowned than that of the sun, and titling him Sheikh al-Islam of his era remains until our time upon the virtuous tongues. It will continue tomorrow just as it was yesterday. No one refutes this but a person who is ignorant of his prestige or one who turns away from justice. Truly, he was a sign amongst the signs of Allah. May Allah forgive him and bestow mercy upon him. Amin. Al-Iz ibn Abdis Salam The counselor of King Saleh Ismail the Ayyubid ruler of Damascus approached Aliz and pleaded with him. I'm sure if you only moderate your stance a little, all will be set aright. You will be restored to your position and even given higher ones. All you have to do is kiss the hand of the king and show courtesy to him. There was nothing but silence, as the counselor anxiously awaited the reply. Aliz was the preeminent scholar of Damascus at the time. He was the head professor at the Al-Zawiya school of Damascus, and also the head imam and khatib of the famous Umayyad mosque. But he had long since fell out of favor with the Ayyubid ruler. Aliz had publicly criticized him on the minbar for giving key territories away to the crusaders and allying with them against his cousin Ayyubid princes. He had even refrained from making dua for the king during the Friday sermons. The king immediately detained him. Then came the response, How ill do you think of me? Are you suggesting that I kiss his hand? I do not accept that the king kisses my hand. You people live in a world totally different from mine. Eventually, Aliz had to leave Damascus, the place of his birth sixty years ago. Aliz headed for Egypt, where his scholarly reputation preceded him. He was given an honorable welcome in Egypt. The king, Nazir ad-Din Ayyub, immediately appointed him chief cadi of the city, in addition to a highly ranked teaching position. Once Aliz entered Egypt, another respected scholar, Al-Hafiz al-Mundiri, ceased giving fatwas out of respect. What really made Aliz different from other scholars of his time was his uncompromising stance on Islamic principles and his courage in defending the right of Allah and his people, regardless of the cost to his person. Once on the day of Eid, he publicly rebuked King Nazir for allowing alcohol to be sold. The king, with the greatest respect for Aliz, accepted the chastisement and immediately rectified the matter. As a result of these kind of interventions, Aliz received an unusual amount of respect from the leaders around him who were not accustomed to having their authority challenged in any way. One of the most remarkable of his edicts in Egypt was to declare that regardless of the high regard and status given to Mamluks in society, they were still slaves of the state and therefore had to buy themselves their freedom. This caused great consternation amongst the ruling class. King Nazir rejected the ruling which led Aliz to pack his bags and leave Egypt. As he left, he was accompanied by a large number of Kyrenes 
who could not bear to leave their sheik. The advisers of King Nazir exclaimed, If your sheik leaves you, your kingdom will be lost. On witnessing this mass exodus, the king revoked his earlier ruling and accepted the decree of the sheik. The Mamluk officers had to buy their freedom. Aliz was reinstated in his earlier position. The Mamluks, however, were enraged. A group of them went out to kill Aliz if he would not overturn his ruling. They came knocking at his door with their swords unsheathed. Aliz's son urged his father to escape, to which the father replied, Move out of the way, my son. Your father is too humble to be given the honor of martyr for Allah's cause. As he came out of the door, Aliz stared calmly at the Mamluk officer. On seeing the elderly sheik, the arm of the Mamluk officer froze, then fell. Tears streamed down his cheeks as he asked for Aliz to pray for him. And thus came about a most curious scene in the history of Egypt. Mamluk princes gathered at the marketplace, and each had a friend or family member pay to attain their freedom. The money would all be spent toward the community's benefit. Such was the nature of Aliz, resolute in applying the letter of the laws of Allah. It was this attribute of Aliz that won him the love of the common folk and the respect of kings. In 1260, with the threat of the Mongol horde looming from the east, the Mamluk Sultan Qutuz rose to power. He made Aliz his closest advisor. It so happened that for a very brief period of time, Aliz had taken Qutuz as a student when he was much younger in Damascus. The two forged a close relationship. Qutuz would seek advice from Aliz in all matters of state, but especially at this critical moment for the Ummah, Qutuz sought the counsel of this great scholar on the threat posed by the Mongol horde. The opinion of Aliz was categorical. He did not hesitate to impress upon Qutuz his belief. You have to fight the Mongols. They must be stopped, and Allah has chosen you to do so. The Mongols had never lost in an open battle to date, and no one believed they could be defeated. Egypt was the last bastion of hope in the Islamic world, and they knew the Mongols would come hunting for them inevitably. Aliz played a great part in encouraging Qutuz to take the Mongols head-on, and most importantly, to rely on Allah for help and victory. While Qutuz prepared his princes and armies for war, Aliz took on the task of raising the banner of jihad. Aliz knew he had to instill courage in the people to put their trust in Allah and take on the enemies of Islam. With his students, he went from mosque to mosque, encouraging the common folk to do whatever they could to participate in the jihad. He knew that a concerted effort was required by all if victory was to be achieved. In 1260, Qutuz, Aliz, and the Egyptian army rode out to face the Mongols head-on. The result was a monumental victory for the Muslims at the Battle of Ain Jalut. It was the first time the Mongols were routed in open warfare. Aliz, though he was seventy at the time, fought with sword and shield in hand. Aliz was a great scholar and a master jurist in the Shafi'i school. The great scholar Ad-Dahabi says of him, In his knowledge of fiqh, devotion to religion and God-consciousness, he attained that degree of perfection that makes one qualified 
to exercise ijtihad, or scholarly interpretation, of Islamic law. Ibn Kathir agrees. Aliz also wrote many books on various topics such as tafsir, hadith, and usulu fiqh. Aliz ibn Salam died two years after the Battle of Ain Jalut. He was a man who believed strongly in justice as one of the key ingredients in receiving Allah's help. One of the guiding principles of Aliz was that he strongly believed that the assistance of Allah would never come to a nation which was unjust. The following words of Aliz reflect this belief. We cannot fight in Allah's cause when injustice continues unchecked in our society. In relation to the role of scholars, Allah Juri said, What do you think, may Allah have mercy on you, of a road that is filled with many obstacles and the people are in need of crossing it in the darkness of the night? Then lamps were lit for them to light their way, so they passed it safely in good shape. Then another group of people came that had no other choice but to tread the same path, so they walked through, and as they were doing so, the lamps were turned off and they were left in darkness. Such is the example of the scholars amongst the people. That was the final part of the Second Crusade stories, The Mongol Scourge. I hope you enjoyed the series. And if you did, please leave a review and rating wherever you listen and to share the podcast with your family and friends. We are on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and we're also on YouTube as a voice-only channel. Do join our Islamic Audio Bites community on Facebook and Instagram and follow me on Twitter. We've also got a website. Please do check it out at islamicaudiobites.com. If you'd like to contact me directly, please do so at sisterb007 at gmail.com. As always, hope your day is full of goodness. Assalamu alaikum.